You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Welcome to Max's Island. Today my guest is Jeffrey Effendi. Jeff is the founder of an organisation called Draw History. Welcome to Max's Island. Oh, thanks, Tony. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. So, Jeff, the context of this podcast is you're going to tell me a story of a time when you did something a little bit different, a little bit crazy, went against the grain, against the norm, um, and that decision has led you down a particular journey and, and it's created a story. So the microphone's yours. Welcome to the island again. Oh, great. Thank you. Thanks, Tony, again. It's a privilege to, to be able to chat with you. I'd love to just share a little story, I guess, about uh, the time that I had graduated from law school um, and how I pivoted my career a little bit. I think there's something interesting there about um, I guess often as people, we tend to double down on decisions um, and we see, you know, if there's a particular opportunity and we think it's the right one and we commit to it, um, there's an idea of sunk cost fallacy, that if we don't double down and commit to it and we don't make it through, that it's not the right thing to do. Um, for me, um, coming from an Asian background, um, obviously, you know, high grades and getting into law school was a priority for me. From, um, from what age uh, were you focused on that? Oh, well, at first, you know, I think engineering would be at the yeah. top until my parents realized that I was just no good at math and actually English was a better choice for me. And I think from year 11, year 12, I started to shape my grades to make sure that I got into law school because, you know, perceivedly, that's where I needed to be, yep. right? Talk about doubling down, it's year 11, year 12, investing six years into law school, um, and, you know, also the hex debt that accompanies that. Um, and after that, the journey to find a job, because everyone is running their own rat race. Everyone wants a prestigious law job. It's instilled in you when you're at UWA, you're going through, you're seeing the cohort, everyone's wanting to get an internship at the big law firm. Um, and for me, um, because I, I wouldn't say I slacked a little bit, but I definitely didn't keep up with all the extracurriculars, you know, in resume, rah, rah, rah. And so um, was it, it was pretty competitive then by the sounds as well? Yeah, super competitive. I think, you know, coming from a school where I thought I was 
one of the smartest ones you realize in law school actually there's a lot of pretty smart people and they can talk as well and you know a lot of people can can argue a point and all that stuff so competitive in, in multiple ways i guess um also thinking outside of academics being a well-rounded individual obviously these are concepts that sort of come into play during uni and it comes into play as we're searching for jobs as well and so when I started to look for internships, uh, I, I wasn't able to secure any. Right. Um, I actually secured one because a friend of mine used to work there and I was able to secure one. Um, but after leaving law school, um, I found it incredibly hard to find a law job. Um, eventually, after 156 rejections, wow. um, talk about, again, doubling down 156 yep. times, the 157th time I got a job at the federal government's office. And that's not to speak on the standards they hold, um, but I think I had honed in a little bit of my interviewing skills by that point. But, you know, after five months, I realized that it just wasn't a good fit. Yes. It wasn't for me. It was property law. I found that it wasn't aligned to my interests and what I wanted to do. Um, in my heart, I actually wanted to work with nonprofits and um, allowing them to excel in how they communicate themselves um, because I saw it was a need and actually it sort of plays into my background as well as someone who'd migrated to Australia. Um, so, so, was, so was that the primary motivation to work with not-for-profits? Had you done voluntary work uh, or anything like that? That's a great question. I actually um, had only done one voluntary uh, role at that point. It was with UNICEF as a youth ambassador and with uh, afterwards with the humanitarian group, which is Community Legal Centre. Um, but the reason is, you know, when I was seven years old, I moved to Australia because of mass race riots. Um, ethnic Chinese people were being targeted in Indonesia. Um, and I hid in an attic um, with my family before we eventually flew to Australia. Um, so to me, the idea of, you know, bringing altruism to, to community or to business was always there. I just didn't know how to practice that, especially being in law until I saw UNICEF, you know, synonymous with policy for children's rights, and then the humanitarian group, um, refugee rights. But I was working in property law, so it was, super, it was very different. To <laughs> Not very I, close. No. no, but I kept thinking, well, this is a prestigious law job. It's on the terrace in the CBD in Perth. And I really wanted to wear a suit every single day because everyone thought it was a great thing to do. Um, but after five months, I just could not um, sort of keep rocking up to work because it just didn't sit right with me. And I decided to resign from that role. Um, and everyone thought, wow, it took you a year just to get that job. You endured 156 rejections. You finally got that prestigious law job. But then after five months, you pulled the plug. So to me, it was one of the, I guess if you call it, you know, one of the more sort of um, braver things that I had done, sort of out of the box a little bit, out of my comfort zone, certainly, because that was stable pay. It was what I worked towards since year 11, but it just didn't sit right with me. So I actually left that to start Draw History, which is the social enterprise you mentioned earlier. So we work with a lot of nonprofits, um, over 100 to this point, on brand, on communications, to really uplift the stories of the beneficiaries that, that uh, those nonprofits work with. So what, where did the motivation come to create a communications business? So again, you know, I think it comes down to um, perceivedly people think, well, he's good at English and, um, you know, the subjects he aligns with deal with policy and law. But what I truly enjoyed in using the, the English language 
was actually to communicate stories, to be able to convey ideas, to be able to spark conversation. Um, during uni, I actually you know, did a lot of freelance design as well and brand for different clients around the world just to get um, income on the side. And that trained me a little bit as well. I used to write for different publications on entertainment and games and movies online. So that allowed me to also explore that creative side that it, the English language didn't have to be used just for legal or policy. That actually I, I liked shaping narrative. I liked sparking conversation. And that, um, in addition to my uh, background story of moving to Australia, just made a pretty good marriage in terms of, well, I actually want to use that for good. So in reality, you had acquired skills. Yes. Just weren't the skills you acquired at uni. Exactly. That, that's right. And I think that's the scary part about it. When we talk about doubling down and, you know, sunk cost fallacy, well, there's the, the, the student loan, there's the 10 years of high school and uni combined, there's the going to that job, you know, search uh, process. The pressure of expectation. The expectation, right. Not just from family, but from peers who say, wow, well, what's he doing? You know, why did he decide to pivot somewhere else? But I think it's, it's that leap of faith and going, actually, as cliched as it sounds, you kind of have to feel convicted that you want to move from one area to another because you care about it so much. And did you make that move on your own? Uh, I did. So actually, I didn't have a lot of savings when I left that job, but I knew I had enough to buy an iMac um, and a little bit saved just for a few months as, as runway. Um, and at that time, um, my, my now wife, who was my uh, partner back then as well, obviously, um, she had done some work with World Vision and she was still in uni doing her honours degree. Um, funnily enough, you know, she's obviously a very smart woman as well. And um, when I first started, I bought the iMac. I then got set up at a free co-working space. And then on the day she wasn't going to class, she started to sort of input and support and contribute. And then she, I guess, became the de facto co-founder. Great. And so who was your first client? Uh, our first client uh, is a uh, social rights advocate from the UK. Um, her name is Dima. Um, you could probably find her on Instagram, D-I-M-A, and then her last name is Rizik, so R-I-Z-K. Um, so she was raising funds for UNICEF through bracelets she made. So her personal brand was about creating these bracelets of change and she needed a website, to, you know, and she found us on Instagram. That was our very first client. It was only a few thousand bucks, but it was enough for me to jump ship. Um, and she actually made bracelets for Jean-Claude Van Damme and his family. And I thought it was a really cool sort of novel um, thing. I was like, who knows Jean-Claude Van Damme? <laughs> you know, because uh, my dad is actually a, a black belt in karate. So he, he loved Jean-Claude Van Damme and I thought, Wow, what a great sort of novel first client to, to have, yeah. And you said you were in a co-working space? Yes. Um, we're sitting in a, another co-working space, so that's been the very contemporary way that you've set up the business and run the business? Yeah, I, I think there's a really interesting thing about co-working spaces. I mean, other than being able to enjoy the amenities of the community, it is about the collaboration. Is It is about that camaraderie you have with other entrepreneurs who are starting out, who are scaling up. It's being able to learn peer to peer. And there's also that level of friendly competition that you have with your peers going, well, that person's just closed that big client or that person's just done this. How do I reach that level of milestone? How do I learn from them? How do I absorb that knowledge? And how do I share it with people who are then starting to come up as well as you sort of do your time after two, three years, 
you can then nurture other people who come in the space as well. Um, and I think that's a really wonderful thing about co-working space is that you're not just insulated within your own bubble, but you're sharing and you're transferring knowledge with others who are coming up just like you. So Draw History specialises in delivering social change, social impact with, with clients who are, that's their focus. Mm -hmm. What's been some of the great successes in your mind that your clients have achieved with your help? I have a few examples, but I'll probably use one that sort of goes full circle actually in this particular story. So I touched on the fact that I did some work with the humanitarian group. Uh, they were called Case of Refugees before. So they're a community legal centre. They provide free legal servers to culturally and linguistically diverse people, um, especially in the refugee rights space. They gave me a chance when no one else did to volunteer and to dabble in, in legal before I got that paid job in the federal government. So I had already done some work with them and then I decided to leave for that paid job and then I started my social enterprise. So when the time came when they actually needed help with their funding, a few years after Draw History started, they contacted me and they said, hey Jeff, you know, obviously knowing you, you used to work here, we've got this particular campaign that we wanted to run. The government had cut $80,000 of funding for interpreter services, which meant that a lot of the legalese documents you know, would be, it would be very difficult for people who don't speak English to interpret those documents. And they were on the waiting list, um, just, you know, waiting to get their protection visas. Um, so they were in limbo. You know, how do we get the $80,000? So they came to, to us and I said, look, when we run a crowdfunding campaign, we have to do X, Y, and Z. Let's create a brand for it. Let's create a message for it. Um, and I actually worked with, with another creative um, who I look up to. Um, she works at Block Branding at the moment and um, also a couple of volunteers who had no experience in branding or crowdfunding. There were volunteers, one was a lecturer and one was a community worker. Um, so they wanted to sort of help as well. And during this six week process where we were planning and rolling out uh, this campaign, we created materials for it, we created messages for it, and we set up a launch event uh, with a former High Court Justice, Michael Kirby, um, for a Curtin University lecture on refugee rights so that we would have some momentum to push this campaign through. I mean, long story short, by the end of this campaign, pushing it and securing ambassadors for it and, and sort of just working through that um, advocacy process, we ended up raising almost $100,000, which became the largest crowdfunding campaign for refugees in, you know, in this context in Australia, um, which is obviously a great win. And it's not just you know great for Draw History, but to me, it just affirmed, wow, I could actually help that organization because I went out of my comfort zone to start this thing. And we were able to help them in a different way. Yeah. Fantastic story. So running a business that has a strong uh, social focus, how do you go with the conflict of a job that might be worth quite a bit, mm -hmm. but perhaps the motives of the organization are not aligned with your motives? How do you deal with that? And have you come across that before? I think the good thing about having a brand that's fairly strong and stable now is that you don't attract a lot of people who aren't aligned to you when they see the website, when they find out what you're about. They automatically funnel themselves and go, well, I, I, that resonates with me. That message is for me. And they contact us based on that. But certainly earlier on, especially when, you know, in time to be realistic, when we need the cash, those kind of opportunities where people are throwing, you know, a larger sum of money at you, that then becomes more tempting. But I think in running a social enterprise, a lot of it comes back down to the purpose and the mission of the organization. I think 
especially in running a brand agency, you know, we preach about authenticity. We preach about being true to who we are and not jeopardizing that and not um, compromising on that. It would be, I guess, foolish of us to, to then not do as we preach. So for us, it goes back down to our mission, you know, to empower people to do and become more so that together we can improve our world. I've sort of recited it in my head so many times that when we assess whether or not a project is right for us, it goes back to that. You know, are we going to improve the world with this project? Are we going to do it together? Are we going to help build their capacity? Is there an opportunity where they would listen and also be nurtured in what we care about? Um, and being a B Corp ourselves, um, we're held to, to that level of standard as well. So in terms of reporting and the kind of client mix we have, um, we're held to that kind of um, accountability. So to us, you know, I'll give you an example, even one that sort of treads a fine line. There was a uh, butcher shop that wanted to get their rebranding done. Um, look, you know, is there an issue with a butcher shop? Not really. But at the time we had a team member who was vegan and obviously, you know, that plays a part into our decision making and we're very mindful that the community obviously has some thoughts around that as well. So the first thing I did was I spoke to the butcher shop uh, owner and I said, hey, look, why do you want to rebrand? And um, I'd like to get a little bit uh, of information as well on how you run um, your, your shop, you know, is, is, is the meat source free range and then how are the animals treated? And, you know, again, just hinting at animal welfare, sustainability of environment rah, 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 as well. In the end, we assessed it against, uh, in all things considered, and we thought that they weren't a good fit. Um, but I guess we try and keep a level of scrutiny where we can delve a little deeper in that conversation. Yeah. You mentioned also that your very first client was an international client. You got through Instagram uh, and you've just talked about things more on a global stage. Do you do much work internationally or, you know, is that a significant part of the Draw Histories portfolio? We would love to work with more clients internationally. So if there's anyone out there who would like to contact <laughs> us, feel free. But, you know, a lot of the times because service-based businesses only we're face-to-face, -face, we want to empathize with people. We want to empathize with um, the beneficiaries they serve. When we work with a disability organization, oftentimes one of their key stakeholders would be clients, people with disabilities. Um, and in that consultation process and in creating that story, they're a big part of that. It's much easier to be able to have that conversation and to be able to empathize when we're there face to face, as opposed to being, you know, a few hundred kilometers removed. Mm. Um, but we have worked with some organizations globally. Um, we've worked with an NGO in DC. They're one of the biggest in the US. But a lot of the work that we've done is grassroots. And I think there's something special about that, that we're cultivating something for, for Perth and for Australia. Yeah. I, I know that both you and your wife have done some work outside of uh, Australia with other groups. So perhaps you can tell me about that and, and, and let our listeners know how that's impacted on the way you run the business and, and the way you've set goals for yourself. So both my wife and I are involved with the World Economic Forum. Um, they have a particular initiative for younger people um, up to, I think, 32, 33. Um, it's called the Global Shapers Initiative or the Global Shapers Community. I encourage everyone listening to, to check it out. So essentially what it is, is the forum has encouraged young people to self-mobilise and to have their own um, groups or chapters in every city around the world, whether you're a thought leader, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're working in corporate, in the public sector, you work together to create good in your community. 
um, using the networks you have, using the skills you have. Um, I got involved for that exact reason, just to meet like-minded people who obviously have a vision for a WA where everyone's thriving and we're improving society. I think for me though, the, the real benefit there is that, you know, it provides perspective. Um, often when, when we live in a particular place and we work in a particular place, we can get bogged down in the, in the details um, and we get stuck in this bubble where we think this is the be all end all. But, you know, having that ability to step back and seeing the global perspective that the forum provides and the global mandate of, well, what are some global issues that are affecting or are applying to you locally? Um, and how does that influence things around your town, around your neighborhood? Um, I think provides a real perspective as well in, in sort of both bringing global knowledge locally and also bringing local findings to a global stage or a global conversation. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. So in WA, how, how responsive are we and some of your clients to when you, when you talk about those sorts of things? Is there an, an awareness and, and a, uh, a, an appetite to, to take that on? Yeah, I think that's certainly a, a, an appetite. I think as long as there's social proof of whatever we recommend has happened before, I think um, being in Perth, sometimes we can be a bit hesitant to adopt things quickly. And that's okay because that's, that's you know, we want to adopt what's familiar to us. And a lot of the stuff that's happening on the frontier, certainly in, in the design thinking or human-centered design front are happening elsewhere. Um, but, you know, we are starting to have those conversations and it is about being able to, one, educate um, clients in going, hey, it's actually happened here and it's worked in this way. And I think once they see it and it has efficacy, they get really into it as well. Yeah. You mentioned that Draw History is a social enterprise. Uh, social entrepreneurism has been pretty vibrant in Australia for probably 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's been some peaks and troughs of uh, startups and organisations that have been successful. What's the community like in Perth at the moment? Yeah, sure. Uh, generally, as a social enterprise community, I, I honestly think there's a lot of momentum and traction to social enterprise. And to me, it's less about is social enterprise attractive as, a, as an infrastructure? It's more about is it sustainable? And if it is, how do more people unlock the ability to create a sustainable social enterprise? Because I think the idea appeals to all that if you can combine making money with doing good, why shouldn't we do that? That's actually the optimal way of living life, right? You make some money, you do some good. The current challenge though is that while the promise of it makes a lot of sense, there aren't a lot of organizations that have shown that it's successful in many different instances, right? And I think it's on those sort of earlier adopters or the the people who have paved the way to show what that can look like. I think a lot of the a lot of the times when I started draw history, I sort of put that responsibility on my shoulders as well, and going, well, there's not a lot of agencies out there that are, you know, that have a social mission that really want to exclusively work with social-based organisations. I want to make sure that it's successful, so that other people can see that and go, well, that's a really viable option. I want to do that as well, because it's on us at the end of the day to show that it's possible and encourage and inspire others to do the same. So, have you felt the pressure? though, of being a, a non- social entrepreneur? Yes. <laughs> well, I guess it's probably no different to any entrepreneur. E- exactly. In a startup. E- yeah. Exactly. All entrepreneurs are invested in, in their business, in their baby, in, in their mission. I guess for social entrepreneurs, though, 
the extra layer of knowing you're responsible not only for yourself and your staff but also the wider community sometimes can feel a little more um, there's a level of added pressure if you will because you're emotionally invested you care about not only your business but how your business is impacting community and the people that rely on that impact to be made so you've already been through a process in your life where you doubled down and then realized actually I can pivot and move away. Do you think that set a precedent for you for the rest of your life and that you will in the future go through stages in your life where you, where you will say, okay, well now's the time to pivot somewhere else? A hundred percent. And I think the attitude has to be that you have to be open for different seasons in your life. Um, sometimes some barriers to that would be ego or, you know, again, that doubling down mentality or wanting to be familiar. At the moment, draw history feels familiar, right? It doesn't feel uncomfortable. Of course, there's a lot of challenges still in scaling and there's a lot of interesting clients we work with day to day. But I think for me personally, it's, it's going, well, it's been five years now. What's next for me? You know, whether that's at a different role or whether that's um, playing a, a, a different role internally as well in going, how do I hand this to someone else? And how do I feel more comfortable or get uncomfortable with the idea that someone else is handling, um, you know, our baby that's draw history. And then I play a different role because I think it's important to be able to continue to shift and change and learn and adapt or else you get stuck in, in, in where you were. Well, I think there'd be a lot of listeners who would look at you and go, the fact that you're able to pivot so dramatically out of a law career into something that's in the creative sphere and do it successfully, that they'd be envious of you that you've, you've got that experience now for the rest of your life. And, and when that opportunity comes up, you'll recognise it and mm -hmm. be probably more comfortable in, in making the right decision. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, for, for people listening out there, pivoting will always feel uncomfortable just because we're humans and we don't like change. But change is the only constant and change is always going to happen one way or another. It's, it's I guess, getting uh, comfortable with the uncomfortable, I guess. That's the crux of that message there. Yeah, well, thanks, Jeffrey, for being on Max's Island. I think the message here has been really strong and, and you know, we've had, had guests on Max's Island that have talked about changes in their own life. The fact that you've done it and really encouraging, I think, for all of us, uh, and, you know, I'm a fair bit older than you, but always consider that there's opportunity around the corner and, and I think opportunity comes past us quite often mm. and it's just that we're either not comfortable or not ready to take up that opportunity and um, I think we all should be perhaps a little more relaxed about doing it and doing it for the right reasons. So thanks for being on Max's Island. Thank you Tony, appreciate it. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work he was lost in the details of life each day was a blur, oh work and no play And how, how it had turned out this way He told me his plan, a short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmun track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell back 
Every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone and nothing. 